So, uh, by way of introduction, um, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council is um, quite an ancient organization. And I knew that you know, while I was studying it, long before I studied it when I was practicing law. But I have to say it was brought home to me even more just yesterday, because yesterday I went to uh, Hampton Court, and that's, um, there's a, what they call the privy closet, which is a room where the privy council met. Um, and they, they were depicting his, um, I'm uh, sorry, the council discussing uh, Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine, of, Catherine Parr. So, you know, we're talking 600 years ago, so there you have that. And then, and then today, again, I went to, to the Victoria and Albert Museum, and there was a reference to a Privy Council, uh, sorry, a Judicial Committee in Athens. So this idea of having an advisory group to a ruler is not new. Uh, what's astonishing to, for some and interesting for others like myself and for you guys is that it persists and the form in which it persists. And so that's what I'm looking at. How does this judicial committee, which is a part of the Privy Council, how it persists, has persisted through time and into um, to modern day to today. So uh, that's where I'd like to start. Um, I will present some a couple of research questions which will, uh, if you don't, frame what I'm going to talk about. It's just two research questions, and they're questions that what I'm attempting to, to, to answer. And my presentation will not provide the answers to all the questions, the both questions, because my research is not complete. But I'll give you, I'll talk about what I have, and then talk about where I'm going, what I'm going to do. So um, I'll talk a little bit about the Privy Council in more detail in a bit. And then why, why, are we, why is this case important specifically today? Why do we you know, need to look at it today? Why this case, the, the Privy Council and the Commonwealth Caribbean, and why it's important? I'll spend one slide on some definitions because I'm going to you know, use some terms that have very broad meanings. Sounds very broad, but I'm using them very specifically. So I'll just talk, just maybe four things. I'll talk about that for a second. And then... Uh, to frame as we go along, I'll talk about critical junctures, and I'll explain a bit about that, and we'll have a slide to show you what I'm talking about, so it helps frame our thought process as, as we go through it. And then I'll get into the meat of it, which is the theory and the analysis that I've done and where I'm going with the, with the analysis. This will be presented in three parts, or three phases, and uh, you'll be able to move from one to the other along with me. And then we have some questions and a discussion. I'll answer any questions. So my first research question is, why would uh, British colonies, when they get to independence, decide to retain the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council? Why would a sovereign state who is getting rid of the shackles of colonialism uh, decide that, you know, we think it's a good idea to retain this body in the, in the colonial state, in the colonial uh, uh, country. And that, that referred to the court, this group will have the final say on any legal challenge to, prep to policies and laws within that state. Why would a country do that? It seems, especially when I speak to my American counterparts, when I pose this question, they were like, you're right, that's ridiculous. Why would a country do that? It doesn't make any sense. 
And then the second question is, for the states that do retain the, the Privy Council, a number of them, and I'll, you'll get some numbers in a little bit, a number of them, after a certain period of time, varying periods of time depending on the country, decide, you know what? We don't want this court anymore. We don't want this institution as part of our judicial hierarchy anymore, and they abolish it. Some don't, some do. Why was it a good idea at one point in history, and then another point, it's not a good idea anymore. We want to get rid of it. So I want, and that's the second question I want to look at. So as I mentioned, this is a, the, judicial, the, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which I'll refer to as the JCPC for short, because <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a mouthful. So the JCPC has been around for a long time, as I said. Um, it's it's a, a, a group of, at one point, not necessarily um, lawyers or anybody with legal experience, but there were people from the Privy Council, men, basically, uh, who advised the monarch on issues, and in this case, on legal issues coming from the empire. So any legal issue that was challenged in any part of the empire, the final uh, resting place for that question would be with this council. Okay. The committee as we know it today really manifested itself in the form in uh, 1833. Before that, they sat, you know, when they could pull enough law lords or lords together. Um, just to give you an idea, I mean, there were even um, cases coming from the American colonies, from the 13 American colonies prior to 1776. About 350 cases came from those countries. So cases have been coming since 1628, basically. Uh, and I'll tell you why that's important in a minute. But uh, so cases have been coming from all over the empire. But... This, this act of 1833 kind of formalized the council. It made it so that it wasn't a haphazard where we just pull in available law lords, uh, sorry, lords, to sit on the committee. There were people who had some interest in this, who had a, a, a legal background, and they formalized the sitting and the protocol of how this would work. So that's the, the act that we look to. By 1921, now as I said, this has been going on uh, for a long time, a good starting point would be about 1628. But by 1921, the British Empire covered 25% of the world. So this committee was hearing a very diverse uh, spectrum of cases from multi-dimensional uh, cultures and very, lands very far away, which the law lords were probably not familiar with or no personal experience with. So um, it really uh, shows you the breadth and the sort of power that this, this committee had. And of course, for those of you who are familiar with uh, uh, British common law, we know that a decision on a case that comes from um, South Africa, for example, uh, holds, the decision holds, is a precedent, holds sway with cases coming from other parts of the Commonwealth. So it wasn't just influencing the singles colony at the time, it was going across the, the different colonies because they were paying attention to what was going on across the empire. And then the other significant, there, there are many significant acts, but the most significant act, the next most significant act is the Westminster Act of 1931. This act is important because it was the act that allowed the 
colonies that became dominions were given the, the authority to abolish appeals to the Privy Council. And for countries like, uh, specifically like Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, this is sort of considered their independence day. They don't necessarily have an independence day like the way some of us from like Belize and Jamaica think about it um, because they stayed within, they, they went to a dominion status, which you know, most other countries didn't, did, or colonists didn't go to dominion status. But in 1931, and this actually was, uh, this act was crafted um, with a great deal of influence because of what was going on in Ireland at the time, which became the Republic of Ireland. So this is an important act, and from that time, countries were given the right to decide, when it became independent, to decide we want to keep this court or we don't want to keep this court. Now, keep in mind that this decision to retain the court or not, if you retain the court, the court was free. The country doesn't have to pay a dime. The British taxpayers support the law lords that sit on the JCPC. They're housed here, they're paid. The drawback is that the country has no say in who sits on the court or if anybody is to be removed or retire. They have no say on anything to do with the court. So they have the decision to retain it or not. It's free, free financially, but it does come with this that they have no control over anything to do with the court, except whether they can allow appeals or not. And then the last, not, a, not necessarily a date, but the last uh, point to, to mention is while Westminster Act of 1931 marked uh, independence for the Dominions, the decolonization process post-World War II then really let loose all these sovereign states coming out of the British Empire. Um, starting off with India and you know, just went on until in the 80s. And um, they're still colonists, but it went on until the 80s. So it went on for a long period. And so as the countries came out, they reached what I call the first critical juncture. We'll talk about that in a second. So just a visual, most of you would have seen something like this or similar. The things in red represent 25% of the world that was in the British Empire in 1921. So you can see, there's your visual for 25%. You can see it's quite extensive. So why is this case important? Why, why, why would we want to look at this? First of all, it's, it's so big, as I just demonstrated, right? And not only that, it, gave, it provides researchers, like myself, um, an N or a sample of, by my selection, 50 cases, or 50, 50, uh, N of 50 coming out of the empire. And I'll explain a bit more about that. Uh, the, the British had different styles of colonial rule and I will talk about that a little bit more too, what I'm talking about and there were two large buckets that all the colonies can fall into it wasn't as cut and dry as I will because I have to make some generalizations but um, they did have different um, styles of colonial rule depending on what was happening on the ground right? what, what area of the world they were in and basically it was direct or indirect rule, and I'll talk about that. And the JCPC is arguably the first or most, and most important example of an extraterritorial court. In other words, a court that's dealing with cases coming from multiple jurisdictions. A single court dealing with cases coming from multiple jurisdictions. 
and that's why it makes it work. And also, I was just discuss discussing with uh, Dr. Quinn, there's an availability of data. We, you know, researchers like myself who want to do quantitative analysis uh, or qualitative, and quantitative, qualitative, we can get the data, it's available, and for me particularly, it's in English, so that helps. So what I'm trying to do then, what I'm trying to do is improve our understanding of why the governing coalition of a state would, what are their views on the final court? How, what, what is it they're looking for in the final court? What is influencing them in the choice of final court? So we want a better understanding of that. I'm trying to produce, provide a better understanding of that. And also having uh, a bit of understanding of their view, what does that tell us about how states will respond to emerging extraterritorial courts or tribunals? So how do, what, do, what, do, what can you tell us about states looking at um, the, the, the uh, 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 European Union is actually, a, a European Court of Justice actually is a very good one to look at. But also in the wider um, uh, world, we're talking about like the criminal, uh, me, criminal, international criminal court, yeah. So examine that. How do courts, what, what do countries think about these courts? What are they looking for? And there's also a human rights court in Africa. There's one in Central, in Central uh, uh, for the Americas that's also developing. So how are these courts, how these countries look at these courts? What do they want? Just briefly, the definitions. I use the term governing coalition, and I'll probably, I'll try and stick to governing elite. And the governing elite, we're talking about the leaders. So we're talking about people, the political leaders, uh, the members of the security forces. And I'm not going to refer to any specific member of it. I'm talking about them as a group. That's my meso level, and I'll talk about that in a second. And the critical junctures, I'll talk about that, which is a point where there's a choice, right? We either go this way or we go that way. In this, in this case, there are two choices. When I start talking about cases, I'm talking about uh, questions of law that appear, that, that uh, decided by the JCPC, but I'm really only looking at cases where the state is either respondent, where the state has been challenged, or where the state is appealing a decision. So if it's two companies fighting over something, I didn't, I didn't look at, I didn't, two private companies, I'm not looking at those cases. Only the state is a party to the action. So when I refer to cases, those are the cases I'm talking about. And then I have a subcategory, which are salient cases. And these are cases where the government may have a particular interest in the outcome of the, outcome of the case, of the court. And it could be that there's some sort of um, election challenge. So the ruling, the ruling uh, coalition is being challenged and it goes to the courts. Um, there's land acquisition, which is also a very touchy subject for governments when they start acquiring land from private people. That always gets a little touchy. Where there's a large amount of money involved or where the state is appealing. In other words, the state has been challenged in the lower courts in its jurisdiction. It is not happy with the, la the court of appeal in the jurisdiction, so the state has said, you know what, this is important, for, important enough for us that we will go to the Privy Council. So that constitutes salient cases, or a salient case. 
this is where I want to uh, try and, f and I'll, you'll see this slide, the exact same slide twice, is to frame our thoughts, so to frame how we move forward. So what I've mapped out here are uh, critical junctures. So for example, we have colony one, which is a group of colonies. That colony moves to independence, which is the first critical juncture, and it has a decision. So it can decide, some decide to retain the Privy Council, they move forward, right? This set of colonies, or sorry, countries have retained the Privy Council and have not made any other decision. They, today, they still have the Privy Council, or sorry, the JCPC. Um, example, Jamaica, Mauritius, Trinidad, for example. There, there are more. The second uh, set of colonies, or second example, would be the, one, the country that goes to independence and abolishes immediately. Right? So it abolishes, 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 abolishes the, the, the JCPC and sets up its own final court. Example would be like the Seychelles, um, Sierra Leone did, Zambia, um, um, Tanzania did as well. And then the final group are those who go to independence, retain the Privy Council at independence, but then at some, some time later on, they abolish and establish their own court. So varies from time to time. Example, and if, you, if, if at the end you really want to see a specific country, I have, I'm not going to do it in the main part of the presentation, but if you really want to see a specific country, I can pull it up at the end. But to give you an example of a country like that would be, which surprises some people, would be like Malaysia. <coughs> 1957, they became independent. They didn't abolish the JCPC until 1986. Okay? New Zealand, another example. They were a dominion, so 1931, they had the choice to do it. They didn't abolish until uh, 2005, 2005, 2004, uh, December 12, 2004. So, and it doesn't seem to matter and we'll talk about what matters and what doesn't matter, but it doesn't seem to matter what the size of the colony is. The Seychelles is really small, right? Tonga is really small, and they abolished. Yet you have big countries that retain, so it doesn't seem to have anything to do with size. Okay. So my theory is, for the first phase, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, is that what the ruling coalition wants, what the governing elite want, is they want a court... They talk, they may talk about independence of the one of the independent judiciary, but what they really want is a court that they feel fairly sure that it's, or they're likely that the court will uphold and legitimize their preferences when they're challenged in court. That's what they really want. They don't want a court that's going, that they, it's questionable what the court is going to say. They really want a court that's going to legitimize their, their personal preference. This is a it, some people may say, oh, of course, you know, politicians dabble in the judiciary all the time, but it's actually pretty revolutionary when Dow said it in 1957. I mean, there was this facade that the, the judiciary, he's American, by the way, so he's an Americanist. He was talking about the American Supreme Court. There's a facade that the judiciary, especially the U.S. Supreme Court, is independent. You can't touch them. They're never influenced by anything. But he actually came out and said, no, no, no. It was really revolutionary when he said it. And it, 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 it sparked a of, of articles condemning him for saying it and research showing why he was wrong. But he did, he, he stuck to it and it's, as you can see, it stood the test of time. So what I'm doing is I'm saying, well, you know, he said it about the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's see what it looks like if you take that somewhere else. So 
what we want to do is see what aspects of British colonial rule uh, may influence this choice. What is possibly influencing the choice at the first critical juncture at independence? And the two main things that I'll, and I'll talk about all the variables in a minute, but the two main things to function on that I'm fo focusing on is the length of colonial rule. And by length of colonial rule, I'm talking about when officially became a colony, the territory became a colony, the land mass became a colony, to the point of independence. That's what I'm talking Not when the first settler put foot on the soil, but when it was first recognized by the crown. Okay? And then the second part of it is the type of colonial rule. Now, uh, type of colonial rule, as I said, there are two big buckets or classes or groups, direct and indirect. By direct rule, I'm using um, Lange's definition, Lange 209. By direct rule, we mean that in the colony, the only judicial institutions functioning were the British institutions. There were no other judicial institutions functioning. So any kind of legal question, regardless of that, was handled by an institution that the British instituted, put in place. So, for example, in, um, well, there are plenty of examples. In, in Canada, in, in Belize, and I'll uh, talk a bit more about it too, in uh, Jamaica, those are direct rules, New Zealand direct rule. There were no other legal institutions functioning during colonial rule. Indirect rule means that there, were, there was two systems functioning. There was the British institutions, common law system functioning, but there were also traditional customary laws being used in lower courts. So you had two systems functioning at the same time. And Lange, thankfully to Professor Lange, did uh, the research on that so that we know how, what percentage of legal questions were being answered by the, uh, the, the uh, traditional and, and, and uh, customary institutions. We know, we know that. And it ranges from zero to 90 something percent, depending on the colony. So somewhere like Nigeria, or somewhere like um, India, they had large indigenous populations there already that had institutions, that had a culture, that had strong enough institutions that were not erased completely by the British uh, colonialism. So the British used them to govern and allow them to function in parallel to the British institutions. Of course, none of the settler population, in other words, none of the British settlers were subject to those courts. Those were for the natives only. Okay. And we'll probably hear a little more about that as we go along. So my first hypothesis is, and these are, this is what I'm hypothesizing, is that the longer the period of colonial rule, the less likely the colony, turned state at independence, will abolish the court, will abolish the JCPC, abolish appeals to JCPC. And secondly, that direct rule, where there, was, there were only British institutions functioning, uh, colonies, are, those are more likely to delay the abolishing of the court to delay the abolition of the JCPC than those that were indirectly ruled. So those are my two hypotheses that I'm going to try and respond to. Now, this is, uh, this is where I get to my methodology. 
the first, I do it in two parts, and I'll explain to you why I do it in two parts. This is answering the first critical juncture, what happens at independence. The first part of it is I do a descriptive analysis and summaries using a Shapiro-Wolf-W test. The reason I use, I started with this is because I'm doing a quantitative analysis uh, for the first part, and the N is too small, the N of 50 is too small, so I have 50 colonies moving into statehood, is too small for regressions to be, to be uh, sufficiently instructive or give enough information. So I start with, and you'll see as we move along, what Shapiro Wilkes um, does. Uh, but I do still run a probit model, and probit models really talk about probability. Like, it, it tries to say what's the likelihood that something will happen, right? So I use probits with a jack, with jackknife. Jackknife, uh, actually what jackknife does is it takes each unit that it's looking at and applies it individually. These are all, I don't do these by hand, by the way, so don't think that I'm some kind of mathematical whiz. There's a program that does it, right? So but what it does is it takes, it looks at each observation and does it individually, separate, as opposed to taking them all and doing it. So that's what jackknife does. My unit of analysis is the state colony or state because it's the colony moving to state. Um, and at my N is 50. I have 50 colonies moving into statehood. I don't look at uh, places like Iraq that were mandates after World War I. I don't include Egypt. So um, I, I do leave out some places that were technically under British control. My dependent variable is, is, is binary. Abolish, retain. One or zero. Did they act or not act? So if they act, they get one. If they didn't act, it's zero. It's binary dependent variable. So my independent variables, as I said, I talked about that, is the length of colonial rule and the type of colonial rule. Those are what I am saying in my hypothesis are the most likely explanations. That's what I'm hypothesizing. But I do control for other things. Right? So I have, I have four controls. I control for the percentage of the population that was settler population, that how many were of, of English descent. Okay. I also controlled for the GDP per capita at the year of independence. Now, um, and then I control also for whether there was conflict prior to independence between the national, the, the, the emerging elite, local elite, and the colonial government. Was there any conflict? And then this is, this is an interesting one, and, I, and if some people may want to see the breakdown of this, but I, I look at the leadership. I look at the prime minister at the time of independence, whether the prime minister received any tertiary education in the UK. My thought is, even though I'm not, I'm not focusing on it, my thought, my thought is, I should say was, but I'll say is for now. You'll understand why in a minute. My thought was that if the prime minister in this new emerging elite, right, coming out of colonialism, going into independence, was trained in the UK or had some education, level, education in the UK, that they may, the country may retain the Privy Council because they would have come here and been brought into the, to the British system. They would have been experienced, exposed. That was my thought. Please, if you all have questions as we go along, if I'm not clear about something, just you know, let me know. Sorry, I should have said that in the beginning. So here's 
what I what we get when I when I do a summary. I, you don't you don't think too much. Uh, you don't have to focus too much on all the details. I'll point out some very important things. All this is telling you. This is fifty. Those are my fifty states, right? That's all it's telling you. And these are the these are the variables on the side. And um, what you can see is just as for years as a colony, the shortest, the minimum was fifteen years, which was Myanmar, Burma, by the way. Uh, individual colony, although Burma was part of the Indian, you know, big colony at one point. And the longest is 360 years, which is St. Kitts Nevis. So all the other countries fall in between that. And this just tells you the mean and the standard deviation, which tells you how much on each side of the mean. And then um, this is the one I was talking about, the type of colonial rule, which are operationalized by the number of cases decided by the uh, customary traditional courts. And you can see that it uh, varied from zero to as much as 93%. So, in other words, the British institutions, uh, British common law courts only dealt with 7% of uh, legal questions, went, went to them. Everything else was handled um, locally. Settler population, again, you can see the range from 0.01 to 96%. Um, GDP, again, this is US dollars. If you have questions about that, you can let me know. And then, uh, this is just telling us that of the, of the 50 states, there were nine that had pre-independence conflict 18%, and this is saying that of the 50, there were 19 prime ministers out of the 50 that had been educated in the UK, some level of education in the UK, and that's 38%. Now this, this is more fun. So when you look at the 50 states, this is the first shot across the bow of my um, uh, uh, descriptive analysis. Uh, when you look, you find that of the 50, that I'm looking at in my sample, 20 abolished immediately at independence, and 30 retained uh, at independence. So more than 50%. And again, that, that's pretty striking when you think about the sort of nationalist movements, and particularly uh, uh, outside of Canada and Australia and New Zealand. Um, that's, that's, that's a pretty striking figure that, that that's what happened. If you break it down just a little bit more, we find that uh, this says January 1, 2015. I can update you and say as of uh, May 19, <laughs> 2015, it's still um, 13 countries that went to independence uh, that still have the Privy Council. And the, the average years as a colony is 196 years. Those that abolished uh, the appeals at independence, as I said, was 20, and the average years of colonial rule was 84, and those that retained at independence, but then at some point, varying points, abolished, there were 17, so you can 17 and, 30, 17 and 13 is 30, right? And the average year colonial rule was 108. So you can see that, I'm, you know, my intuition may have been right, right? It doesn't prove it, but it's pointing in that direction, right? That the longer you were under colonial rule, the more likely you were to retain, and the longer you were, the, the, the longest group actually had not abolished yet. If you look at direct and indirect rule, we find that there were 27 uh, uh, colonies turned into states at independence, were, had indirect rule, and 23 had direct rule. And you can see that 
the average years of colonial rule for those that, that were indirect rule was 27. I mean, I mean, sorry, was 70 for the 27 states, and it was 181 years for those on the direct rule. So again, you get that, that little arrow, maybe turning that way saying there's something from there. Okay, ooh, I better speed up. Okay. Um, what all I've done here is done a quick analysis on using these two um, uh, main independent variables. And this is where I get my, most, of my most of my support for my hypothesis. Basically what we're saying is that it does seem that once you pass um, uh, the mean of, sorry, start up here. Once you pass the mean of, of 80 years, the chances are that you will um, not, you will not um, abolish. And then with direct rule, or type of rule, once you, once you pass the, the mean, the chances are that you will not abolish. So it's pointing, it's significant based on my, uh, my Shapiro-Wilcox test, Wilkes uh, W test. So this is the second phase. Again, same format, but now we're not, we're not paying any attention to these countries, right? Because they abolished that independence. We're only looking at those that retain, so the 30. Now, what you will notice is that, well, well sorry, I'll, let me say that later. So we're, I'm looking to see what changed post-independence that would make the country uh, uh, abolish the Privy Council. What happened after independence? Something must have happened. And so I'm looking at the cases before. I'll give you a different cases that went before the court. And if there were any changes in the regime, any change in the type of government? I have two hypotheses. The first one is that the lower the percentage, the win rate, let's, I'll just uh, short circuit this. The lower the win rate in the cases that go, the more likely the state is to say, mm, I don't trust that court anymore. <coughs> we have diverged. We don't share the same policy preferences anymore. Let's get rid of it. And the second one is that this is key. It's a sub-hypothesis, but that if you look at the salient cases, if you go beyond all the cases that I look at, and you look at the salient cases, you'll find that, hmm, if, if it does, if they're not winning at the rate they, they, that they feel comfortable, especially with important cases where there's a lot of publicity, then they will abolish. So this, I, haven't, I, I don't have the results for this yet. This is where I'm at. I do a, I'm going to do a split population duration model. So basically, this, all this is is saying, how long does it take for the event to happen? How long does it take for the, for the, the, the country to, to make the decision? The unit of analysis is state, and I'm doing 28 states. Now, I'm only doing 28 out of 30. Remember, I had 30 states. I don't do two states. I don't do Belize, and I don't include Barbados. And the reason for that is that when they got to the second critical juncture, they were countries that retained that independence. When they got to their second critical juncture, they had a different choice. They chose the Caribbean Court of Justice. So they didn't just abolish the, JC, the Privy Council, the JCPC, and they did not set up a domestic final court. There was another choice. So I'm not studying that choice. Um, so my N is a lot larger. The reason my N is 839 is because I'm doing uh, across time. So I'm looking at what happens from the time of independence until the time, until modern time, until the state abolishes. So you get multiple years. So 
That's why it's that, it's that large. The dependent variable is the same as before, abolish or not. We discussed this, so basically we're looking at, I'm looking at win rates, right? That's what this is talking about. Regime. So did the regime become more democratic? Did it, become, did it remain the same? Or did it become more autocratic? And uh, this is, a, a, well, if you, if you want to ask more questions about this, how I did this, it's important how I did this because it's, this sort of thing is very difficult at a macro level to, to establish, but I have a way of doing it. And then I'm controlling for the number of requests to leave for appeal. Now, this is important because the state knows when somebody requests an appeal, requests to go to appeal. So they will be watching and say, my gosh. And I can give you an example of this. Um, uh, Kenya kept the court for about three years, but cases that were filed prior to them abolishing, the decisions still get made, and there were 20 cases just from Kenya. So they knew that these things were being filed. So did that have something to do with it? I'm controlling for that. And then I'm looking at a number of JCP, JCPC cases because you could say that, well, a country may say, well, you know, if India has left and, you know, this other country has left, eh, it's not so important. Maybe that's influencing them. And then I'm also running a control for per capita across time of the countries. So and the idea of that is the, the country, will get, if the country's per capita is going up or is, gets really high, there are going to be more attorneys, there's going to be more business, there's going to be more um, clamoring for control uh, by the, the governing coalition. Okay, I'm going to go this real quickly. Okay, so all the cases, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases that I read, right? Um, the, the first part is all cases... The average number of cases for uh, was 22 cases, uh, 29 years um, of the, the states with, with, with the Privy Council, and the win rate was 77%. So 77% of the cases, of all the cases that went before the Privy Council, the win rate was 77%. In other words, the court either decided for the state, right, if the state was appealing, or decided against the person who appealed the state's decision, appealed the decision uh, that went uh, for the state. If you look at salient cases, of course it's the same amount of years because it's the same average, the 10 cases average went up, but the win rate is 64%. So in salient cases, the win rate is lower. These are all, looking at all of them. If you look at the countries that abolished, we're looking at the ones who have done it. They have decided, they reached a second critical juncture, they have abolished. 23 cases average, the win rate, uh, 78%. There are 11 average salient cases. For all the cases, is, is 78%. The win rate is 60%. But those that still have the JCPC, they send more cases, their win rate is higher for all cases, right? 81 versus 78. And it's also higher when the case is a salient case, 69 versus 60%. So, again, kind of pointing in the right direction from my hypothesis that the case, the countries that decide to abolish, it's because they, uh, they, they don't, they're, not, they're not winning at the rate they want or they're not winning the cases they want to win that they think are important. 
If you look at regime, uh, for those, there were three states that became more democratic using, as I said, I can answer questions about that if you want. There were three, and only one abolished, the Privy Council. Those that didn't change, I mean, a classic example of a country that didn't change would be Australia. It didn't get more autocratic, it didn't get more democratic, it was always really democratic. So by using the scale that I used. And you find that with no change, only four got rid of the, the Privy Council. But for the countries that got more autocratic, where they became more autocratic, of the 10 that became more autocratic, nine abolished, only one retained. Again, little kind of pointing to, to my hypothesis. Not conclusive, but pointing in that direction. So, I, I, I'm running a little short of time. I kind of talk about. But so what this, so what I'm doing then is I'm saying I will run the regression, my split duration, my model split uh, duration model. I'll run that. But what I'm also going to do is I'm going to do a qualitative part section. This is the third phase of my research. I'll do a qualitative part. I'll just run through this real quickly. So what I'll do is process tracing, and I'll look within the case. I'll sample cases. I'll look within the case and then compare them, and I'll look at the meso and macro levels. Um, all I'm saying is that I'm not looking at uh, individuals. I've been looking at institu institutions and then state data. And then this is, this is actually, actually, these two are the key, is the causative hard variables. What I'm going to do is the variables I showed you before that I used for the, for the uh, duration model, I'm going to take those exact same variables and look at them quantitative, qualitatively and trace it and see what went on with these variables in the state, in the sample cases, the countries that I'm looking at. And then this, of course, I give the context. It's all done in context of the country. So my focus, the three states I'm focusing on are New Zealand, Singapore, and the Gambia. And I picked these countries for a number of reasons. Um, one, it gives geographic distribution. One, it gives variation in regime. It also gives variation in number of cases, right? New Zealand had a lot more cases than Singapore. Singapore had more cases than Gambia. It gives variation in the time that they spent with the Privy Council, right? Uh, and I could, I'll just make up, I'm at, the, I'm at the very end, so I'll take questions. But I'll make some comments about the countries, why, why it's also interesting. New Zealand's process to get to 2004, to 2004, was very, um, uh, what's the term I should Very public discourse. There were position papers by the Attorney General, and there were articles written in the New Zealand journals, and it was very much a public discourse about the pros and cons of the whole thing. Singapore is a little, is a little interesting. Singapore didn't have a lot of cases going, but they, a lot of the cases that they went, when I looked at them, they were important cases, and there was one particular case, salient case, where the, the government of Singapore was going after the leader of the opposition. And in that case, the case was decided in 1988, and in that case, Lord Diplock, those of you who know who Lord Diplock was, was very outspoken, brilliant man and very outspoken, spoke very clearly. He directly, in the decision, criticized the Singapore government and said that they were on a path of persecuting the leader of the opposition, there was a, path, a, a pattern of doing it. And they decided for uh, the leader of the opposition against the state. And within a year, they abolished 
the Privy Council. By 1989, it was abolished. And uh, the former Attorney General, uh, Mr. So, actually wrote quite a bit about that. Um, Solicitor General, sorry, not Attorney General. Solicitor General wrote about that. The Gambia is also interesting because in uh, 1994, they had been democratic for most of the time. The time. Uh, they had a coup, and uh, a guy who had stripped himself of his army, he'd been in the military, uh, became president, and um, there was a case in 19... Um, this happened in the there was a case in the 1980s that the Privy Council decided against uh, an institution set up by the then government and declared it was unconstitutional. And what was interesting was that when this guy became president, he immediately started this thing about getting rid of the Privy Council, and he did, and then brought back the same institution that they had declared unconstitutional about 10 years before. He brought back the exact same thing and used it the same way of course, there was no Privy Council there. Now, these are minor, um, I, I may refer to them in my research, and I, I just want to say a couple, just a couple of sentences about them. Canada had some interesting cases, but their cases were about the provinces challenging the national government. And the national government um, lost about 12 cases running up to 1949, and the national government lost about five of the 12. And there's a lot, there's quite a bit of literature talking about Canada and about that. Uh, Jamaica is also interesting because um, Jamaica actually, the Jamaican parliament actually passed a law abolishing the Privy Council, the JCPC. It was challenged in court. It went to the Privy Council and the Privy Council said that the law was unconstitutional. <laughs> so they have the Privy Council still and they haven't made another move. South Africa is also interesting a little bit too because um, they didn't have a lot of cases. Uh, between this time, they only had 12 cases, and only one case that the, 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 uh, uh, the Privy Council overturned the decision of the lower court. But, but in 1948, the National Party, which is the party that really campaigned on the institutionalization of apartheid, won the elections. And keep in mind that uh, 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 decolonization, you know, during that time was the, the big thing, you know, in the 40s, after World War II. And immediately after this, the, the uh, national government, the, the national party that was in power passed about eight, or I think it was eight significant laws that established apartheid in, within two years. They passed all these laws um, during that. And so my hunch is that they were watching and they were saying, hmm, if we do this and we go to the Privy Council, but that's, that's yet to be researched. That's just my hunch. So just to summarize, I'm doing a mixed method approach. I'm doing regressions, right, quantitative stuff. I'm looking at numbers, and I'm also looking at some qualitative data. I'm doing it in three phases. I'm looking at the first critical juncture, the second critical juncture, if it does arise, and then I'm looking at uh, the case studies. And then it also sets the stage for, I also hope to set the stage for some further research looking at other aspects of this big picture, but also um, the, 
the rise of other international tribunals or extraterritorial courts and tribunals set the stage for that. So with that, I will take any questions or discussion. Thank you. Thank you.